Lord, we want to humble ourselves before your word this morning. Because, Lord, we need help and guidance from you to live our lives in such a way, Lord, that is pleasing to you, but also to make sense of the kind of things that we face. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us the things that we don't know, that you would give us, Lord, what we don't have. Um, Lord, that you would make us into what we are not yet through the ministry of the preached word and the Holy Spirit's activity through that preached word. Lord, we are desperate for you to have your way with us. We ask you now to give us insight, understanding, and humility, Lord, to learn from you. In your precious name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by drawing your attention to verse, um, verse see, 3 of chapter 42. Job says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. I've been to many places and seen many wonderful things in my life, probably like you. I've stood in the heart of Yosemite, both in the valley, looking up, it's an incredible sight, as well as being on top of the ridge, looking down and out. Those are amazing sights that make one feel so small and so insignificant, but but also, It causes one to be amazed at the grandeur of God, just to see his creation. Other wonders that I've seen, I've stood at the Inca ruins, like a number of you have in Samaipata, Bolivia, and tried to take in, as looking at those ruins, the kind of life that was going on many years ago. It's the location of what's known as the Inca's last stand. After that, they kind of disappeared. I've, had, I've been to Mount Arbel in Israel, which looks over the Sea of Galilee, as well as Mount Carmel, which looks over the Valley of Megiddo, and just taken all the agriculture in that very, very lush valley. I've traveled on the 17-mile drive from Pacific Grove to Carmel-on-the-Sea, and taken in California's most beautiful shoreline. If you've never done that, we encourage you to do it. It really is a wonderful thing to do. I've stood in places where thousands of years ago significant things took place and tried to imagine them in that space. I've seen beautiful parts of God's creation. And in that sense, friends, I have been blessed and privileged to do those things. But I have just scratched the surface of God's incredible creation. And as a result, I can sing with Louis Armstrong, I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the brightest blessed day, the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what? What a wonderful world. And it is amazing, so many beautiful beautiful things that God has given us in this world. But when we turn to our text today and we hear about things too wonderful that come out of the lips of Job, they're not the things that we might think of. Things that make us say, wow, 
that's really cool. Or maybe in California kind of language, dude, that's awesome, right? That's the kind of wonder I think most of us think of, but that's not what Job is expressing at all. He's talking about things that shake him to his core, that causes him to to abandon his complaints and his arguments and his pride before God. Job has been taken by God to consider things that that he is not aware of, he says, and to comprehend that God is far greater than he can even imagine. So Job, he's saying, stop fighting, stop complaining, stop fretting, stop arguing, stop accusing me of injustice, and let God be God. Let me be God because my sovereignty is greater than you can even imagine. Now, as men, we just started a book by A.W. Pink on the attributes of God, and we're gonna get to a chapter on his sovereignty. And we've heard about God's sovereignty. In fact, it's become so much of the part of our language that I think maybe we can lose the impact of what it means. We do not comprehend the sovereignty of God. Job does not comprehend the magnificence of the sovereignty of God, and that is what is gonna be driving this text. And so he's gonna be taken on a journey. But God begins with what's, what I'm calling is a weighty challenge. Look at, uh, as we begin at verse six, then the, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, And here we have God challenging Job's claim that God is unjust. He's gonna gonna do some things and ask some questions that are gonna penetrate Job's thinking and heart, that are gonna have a huge impact on him. And so God, in his kindness, prepares Job. So he prepares him, first of all. Look at verse seven. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you uh, make it known to me. This is an echo of what we looked at last week in the first speech, isn't it? And again, it's, this is not what Job is expecting. Remember, Job, when, when God finally speaks, is expecting God to answer him about why he's suffering. But that is not what takes place here. It is God now that comes asking the question, and it's Job who must answer those questions. And once again, God says to Job, dress for action like a man. And again, that expression comes from this world of wrestling. And we didn't talk about it last week, but there's an, there's, a, there's an aspect of this statement that has this idea of be prepared. In other words, you have this person you're gonna be wrestling with, and they're now ready to go. And when the referee says, okay, fight, you have to be prepared, you have to be ready. It's actually an expression that was used of a soldier when they're readying themselves for the onslaught of the enemy soldiers coming their way. You remember uh, probably C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, in particular the movie Prince Caspian, and the armies of Narnia are on these ruins, and the the, the armies of the Telemarines are coming to attack, and Susan is on the ramparts there, and she yells out to everyone, brace yourselves! And the idea there is get ready, because it's coming. 
That's what God is saying here to Job. And there's a kindness here because God doesn't just come in and knock him off. He says, listen, I'm gonna tell you some things and you're gonna be challenged with some things and you need to take this like a man, so get ready for it. So we have here conflict language and it's conflict language that is taking place in the court of heaven. God is going to reveal to Job some things that Job does not understand, that he is not aware of, that will magnify the beautiful sovereignty of God. So not only does God prepare Job, he now questions Job, verses eight and nine. God asks three questions in order to say to Job, are you God? Do you think that you have the right to tell me how to run the world? Or how to exercise justice? Are you claiming that you have an arm like God that is powerful and can thunder control simply by the sound of your voice? Can you just speak and command and it happens? And the answer is no. So God asked these questions to to, to impact Job and to, to kind of settle Job, but then God follows up with this challenge. And friends, this challenge is somewhat, um, say sarcastic, it's, it's to make a point, but notice what he's doing. He says, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. God is saying to Job, go on ahead. If you think that you can do this job better than me, go ahead and take, take, my, take my robe here. Take this, this crown Take on the the, the wig of a judge and and you be the one who is now judging over these people. Allow your anger and the overflowings of your anger now to be poured out over those who are proud. Bring them down. Tread them down where they stand. Bury them in the dust. Tie them up in the dungeons of death, the world below. And then he says, basically, so how's it going, Job? How is it ruling the world? Is your justice making changes to what is happening in the world? No? Are your angry speeches making any difference? They're not? No, well just, well just keep it, try harder. Keep, keep, keep going at it. Let's continue reading here, verse 12. Look on everyone who is proud and bring them low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. And then in verse 14, God says, then will I acknowledge to you that you own right, that your own right hand can save you. In other words, there's, there's, there's kind of a dark humor going on here. God is making his point through this. He, he, pres, he, he presses his point further by saying, when you finished setting the world right, I'll roll over and I'll admit that you have it within your power to save yourself. And I will gladly hand over the running of the universe to you, Job. See what God is doing? You think you have the answers? You think you can tell me what to do? Then go ahead, be the judge, you do it. And we must not make the mistake of thinking that God is actually saying, hey Job, you have to understand that ruling this world and this universe is it's a hard job and sometimes I make mistakes and sometimes I get it right and I'm sorry that I didn't get this one right. That's not what God is saying at all. 
But he's, he's listened to Job's complaints. He's listened to Job's, Job's accusations, and he's saying, listen, you think you know what it is like to order this world, but you don't. And I want to impress that on you. So stop complaining. If I don't get it right all the time, he's not saying I'm doing my best. God never does anything but his best. He is always right. He is always completing what he, what he says. You see, in God's first speech, he was emphasizing to Job, Job, you are ignorant as you walk through the earth and the heaven and the animal kingdom. Now in his second speech, God is confronting Job's arrogance. God is speaking this way in order to confront Job's words and to humble him. But as you remember from last week, he's not seeking to humiliate Job, but hear this, to position Job to receive both correction and grace. And that's important for us to understand, friends. I think, I think our culture has this idea, and it comes from Christians who are not handling God's word carefully, or are not, not might say, presenting the gospel carefully. They, 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 they kind of have this idea that we just want to bash everyone's sin. God is not just out to bash your sin. He's saying, I want to expose your sin so that I can bring to you the gospel. I want to show you your sinfulness and the judgment that results from it so that I can show you the good news. My friends, how do you receive correction? How do you respond when someone comes to you to help you with something that you may be doing that is sinful? Are you willing to be humble? Are you willing to listen? Do you take constructive criticism well? Are you willing to have your sin exposed in order to be right with God. See, this is, where, this is where God is pushing Job. He prepares him, he questions him, and then he challenges Job, okay? And that kind of sets the stage here for what's gonna happen next. God now is going to use two illustrations to instruct Job about his arrogance and to reveal his impotence. In speech one, we saw God's wisdom. In this speech, we're gonna see God's power. And so the two illustrations God uses here are behemoth and leviathan. Now what are these creatures? Some of you may have read this for the first time. You're like, what in the world is going on here? Why is there so much ink spilled over these two creatures? Are they part of God's creative world? Are they mythical creatures? Is there something else going on? Now the honest truth is that different, you know, scholars disagree as to exactly um, what these beasts are or represent. Some scholars conclude that the descriptions of behemoth are referring to an elephant or to a water buffalo, but most conclude that what God is describing is a hippopotamus. And the description of the Leviathan seems to describe a mighty powerful crocodile, the kind of thing that Steve Irwin, remember Crocodile Hunter, would wrestle, right? But it seems strange that Job would go through so much suffering and that God would respond to that cry for help, repeated cry for help by saying, Job, I know you're suffering. I know this is difficult. But let me talk to you about a hippo. 
Let me talk to you about a crocodile. I mean, just imagine if this week I have the privilege of, of walking into the joint session of Congress to talk about the mass shootings and the gang warfare that's taking place that's an epidemic in our country. And I go in there and I'm wanting to be a help to them and I say, dear members of Congress, I come to you today to address the horrific events that have taken place recently and to seek to help you to make sense of them. And my first point I want you all to consider is the hippopotamus. And for my second point, I want to talk to you about a crocodile. I would be booed out of that building because it would seem that what I'm saying is insensitive, it's disconnected, and it's unrelated. So let's take a few moments here to take each of these beasts briefly and individually and then seek to make sense of why God chooses to use them as an illustration. So let's begin now with behemoth, behemoth. Read verses 15 through 18 with me here. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength uh, in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. Now here we have seven things that are listed as part of his description in, in this whole section here. First of all, his origin. He says, I made him as I made you. Then we have his diet. He eats grass and lots of it. Then we see his strength in his loins and his belly and his tail and his thighs and his bones and his limbs. Then he's described as preeminent here. That doesn't mean necessarily first in order. It means kind of first in power. Then there's his habitat, the mountains, the plants, the reeds, the marsh, the trees are all mentioned, the willows, the brooks, the river. And then we are given something about his demeanor. If you look, um, look at verse 23, it says, Behold, if the river is turbulent, he's not frightened. He is confident though Jordan rushes against his mouth. You've seen the hippopotamus? And there's this powerful river flowing, and he's just in there, and he just pops his head up, looks around. And if you or I were in there, we'd be like, ah! you know, we'd be flipping over the place, but the hippo, no, he's just calm, in control, knows what's going on. And then we have this question, can anyone take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? He is a dangerous creature. So everything about this creature points to it being a hippo, and yet, he's something more than a hippo. Now let's look at Leviathan. As we turn to this next illustration, the Leviathan, we're struck simply by the fact that it takes 34 verses to describe him. That's a lot. It might take far less verses for you to describe me. But here we have Leviathan, just kind of talked about in such detail here. Christopher Ashe says, clearly we are meant to first see, hear, and imagine, and feel this creature in all his majesty. So as you look at this description, we'll note that it begins with a series of questions in verses one through seven. And these questions can be grouped into five headings. 
And these questions are supposed to be absurd questions and will include instructive forms of dark humor. First of all, will he be a nice catch? If you are the kind of guy that likes to go fishing, anyone here like to go fishing? Right? This is the picture. It's a guy who's sitting out on his boat. And he's, it's a nice calm day, but he's out in the ocean and he, he throws his, you know, his, his, his lure in and he's got his reel and he's pulling it and he's like, oh, I got a catch. This is great. And it's like, wow, this is a big catch. He starts to pull it in and just about the time it gets to the boat, he, he, it lifts up out of the water and it's like there's this really, really big fish. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this great white shark. Whoosh, boom swallows that fish hole. You say, wow, that's pretty incredible. And then all of a sudden comes a sea monster, swallows the, the white shark, swallows the fish, swallows the guy in the boat. That's the picture here, right? Can you draw out of Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? I mean, this is stuff that's out of the twilight zone or Stephen King novel. Secondly, will, be, will he become a domesticated farm animal? Look at verses three and four. Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? I mean, he's like, you know, meh. I want some food, meh, you know. Will he make covenant with you? Okay, if you give me food, then I'll pull this cart for you. So that's the picture here. He's not a domesticated gentle, obedient, dependent farm animal. <laughs> I like the third one. Will he be your family pet? Dad comes home after going on a long work trip and says to his girls, hey girls, I got you a present. Come over here. It's in this box. I hope you enjoy it. It's called Leviathan. Fortunately, he has a leash here, but go have fun. Play with him. No, of course you're not gonna do that. That's what it says there in verse five. Will you play with him as with a bird or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Absolutely not. Will he be a choice piece of meat in the market? Be the fourth one. Can you sell this beast at the market? People are gonna walk by and say, uh-uh, not buying that. That's not gonna taste good. I don't even know that I can kill it. And then he says, will he be your hunting trophy? Verse seven, you can fill his skin with harpoons, or can you fill his skin with harpoons, or his head with fishing spears? Now certainly today, we have technology, and we have the kind of weapons that are powerful, and it doesn't seem like it would be too difficult to kill this beast, but maybe in Job's day, it would be really difficult to kill a very powerful crocodile. But it would be a very daunting struggle for anyone with a spear or a knife. And then God says in verse nine, behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. He's saying, listen, man might come along and beat his chest and say, yeah, I can take him on. Yeah, look, I'm strong, I'm powerful, I can do this. But quickly he says, he is laid low even at the sight of him. He comes up, he sees him, and he just collapses. And then God asks three questions. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. 
He's saying, listen, if you think that Leviathan is bad, and standing before him will cause you to collapse, if you think that it would be scary to stand in his presence, what do you think it would be like to stand in my presence? I don't owe anyone anything. I created the heavens and the earth, everything, including Leviathan, behemoth, and even you, Job. Think about how powerful, mighty, and intimidating Leviathan is, and think about what it means then for me to be sovereign over him, to be the sovereign, mighty creator. And then for the next 23 verses, God expounds on the strength and the might and the power and the fire-breathing and smoke-spewing beast. He speaks of the, the mighty strength of his limbs and his frame, of his terrifying teeth and his impregnable body armor of his fire-breathing mouth and smoke-spewing nostrils. He speaks of his strong neck, his layered skin, and stone-like heart, his underparts, those places where typically on a creature there is some vulnerability, but not for this creature. They're sharp, and he speaks of his power and presence in the water. It's all a very daunting portrait of a beast that is truly hard to imagine. So what is with these two bees. Again, commentators split on what is going on, and there are two extremes. Some think that they are simply a continuous sampling of God's created world, the hippo and the crocodile. Others think that they are mythical creatures, kind of drawn from Canaanite kind of thinking or other pagan religions, cultures. Now, I've been hinting at this, but I don't think that they are merely animal creatures. And this is where we've got to be careful that we don't come to the text with a framework. Sometimes those, like myself, who would be creationists, will come to a text like this and say, we've got to find a dinosaur in here, therefore, this is it. We've got to say, wait a second. Is that actually what's going on here? It does appear that a hippo and a crocodile are in view, but it also appears that in both cases, there is something beyond the natural world that is going on. It appears that what we have in both cases are real creatures with mythical significance. So this is not simply hyperbole. These beasts are beyond any human control. We know men can catch hippos. We have record of that. Pharaohs would go out, and this is one of the things they enjoy doing. Men can catch crocodiles. Again, if he was around, you could ask Steve Irwin. But people do that today. But this text is telling us that man cannot subdue behemoth or leviathan. Why? Because there is something beyond the natural going on. Now friends, there's a principle of biblical interpretation that we must seek to employ here if we're, we're going to be accurate and, and it will also help us out in interpreting what's happening here. It says, in order to understand the word or the image that you're looking at, look to see how that word, in this case, behemoth and Leviathan, is used in the context, then in the context of the book and then in the context of the scriptures themselves. So we interpret scripture with scripture. We see, in particular, how that writer himself is actually using that word to, to present his picture. 
So let's see if there are any clues that can help us. Are either of these beasts found somewhere else in Scripture? Well, I'll just help you out a little bit here. What we find is that this is the only time behemoth is mentioned in all the Scripture. So what we want to do then is we want to think a little bit about, well, then who is this behemoth? Because the, the very name behemoth is a plural word for cattle. In other words, here we have cattle in one beast. And the image here then is a super beast. Okay? So it's not just one beast. It's, a, it's somehow beyond the norm, a super beast. So even though behemoth appears to be a hippo, it is something far more daunting than a hippo. All right? That's just right there in its own word, in its own definition. But let's think about Leviathan. Where else have we come across Leviathan? Have we come across Leviathan in Job? And the answer is yes, in Job chapter 3 and verse 8. And this is the context where Job is lamenting. In fact, he is cursing the day of his birth. And he says in verse 8, May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. Now in this case, to consider Leviathan as simply a crocodile doesn't make sense. It must be something more because Job is using analogies here that are kind of on this cosmic kind of grand scale. And it would be kind of weird to talk about the earth and the heavens and, and then say, oh yeah, and by the way, there's a crocodile somewhere. Okay. Now that's the only reference that we have in the book of Job. So principle of interpretation, where else do we find Leviathan being used? Well, we have Leviathan also being talked about in the Psalms. Psalm 74, verses 13 through 14, and this is what it says. It was you who split open the sea by your power. Psalm is writing about God. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. So in, this, in these two verses, we have monsters in the water, and we have Leviathan mentioned, but Leviathan is mentioned as one having many heads. And then, in Psalm 104 and verse 26, we see again this many-headed monster, verse 26. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed, to frolic there. So it seems that Leviathan is not a freshwater creature. This is a saltwater creature. But it's a saltwater creature that you and I have never imagined or have never seen. And then we then kind of take these circles even further out in the context and we go to Isaiah chapter 27 and verse 1. And here's what we read. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent, he will slay the monster of the sea. So Leviathan then is a monster of the sea that is described here as a gliding serpent and a coiling serpent. So you're taking these images that are in the text of God's word to help you understand this creature. And so from these passages so far, it's clear that Leviathan is not simply a crocodile, but a reference to a monster of the sea that had multiple heads 
and it was very much like a serpent or a dragon that breathed fire and smoke from its nostrils. That breathing fire and smoke from its nostrils comes from the text that we just read. Okay. Now you might say, well wait a minute, I've never seen a monster like this. At least, not in real life. You might have seen it like on some movie or something like that. And you're right. You haven't seen this in the natural world. But I would encourage you to look at the book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation takes the imagery of beasts, of dragons, of serpents, and sea monsters, and applies them explicitly to Satan. Revelation 12 and verse nine, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And again, Revelation chapter 20 and verse two, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. So again, just let this kind of settle in to think through what is it that God is actually trying to do here with these beasts. Christopher Ash summarizes, we have clear scriptural evidence that Leviathan is a strange, terrifying sea monster, a many-headed, fire-breathing dragon who conveys to us the terror and evil of Satan himself. He is the embodiment of cosmic evil itself. Now this is evil that is opposed to God. And these beasts are supposed to bring Job's mind and our mind thoughts of foreboding powers in ways that stir up dread. I mean, he's not saying, as God is presenting these beasts, oh, that's really cool. I think I'll write a book, you know? No, he is consumed with fear by the description of these beasts. They're like the fictional beasts of the past and even of our own era. And you be honest. Do you guys remember watching The Wizard of Oz and encountering the Wicked Witch of the West? Were you terrified as a child? I was. What about the Hound of the Baskervilles? Sherlock Holmes and that wonderful story just terrorize the people. Then the book, the story of Beowulf, and you have the monster Grendel. Then of course there's Dracula, then there's Frankenstein. I mean, why would you be afraid of a guy who's walking like this, you know? And I never understood why people could never get away from him. I mean, he's walking like really, really slow. But of course, you know, when you're in danger, you're running, you know, you're not getting anywhere, right? That's kind of like what happens in your dreams when they're bad, right? Then there's Jason, or there's Freddy Krueger. Then there's the White Witch of Narnia, who specifically was supposed to be the embodiment of Satan in that story. Then from the Lord of the Rings, there's Sauron, the all-seeing eye. And then in that story, Lord of the Rings, there's the Balrog, which is the, 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 the demon from the deep that battles Gandalf on the bridge, Khazadum. And then there's always the Grim Reaper. 
Now, my point here is to say that these are all images that mankind has conjured up to instill fear and dread in people. Beasts and pictures represent that. In fact, you know, we have this idea of Satan, you know, with, with horns dressed in red with a, a long tail that has kind of like a, a sharp end to it and a pitchfork you realize that that is not what he actually looks like. That was created in mockery of him, has now become the standard image of him. But we, we are fearful of these images, and so God is now giving Job these two beasts to Im- impress on him this fear and this dread. Now back to chapter 41, and I want you to show you from our text today, how how God is drawing this together here. Look at verse 33 and verse 34. He says, on earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over the sons of pride. Now you read those, those two verses and if you have in your mind an understanding that this is pointing towards Satan, there's some bells that should be ringing in your head. There's four things that are mentioned here. He's not like him. He's a creature without fear. He sees everything that is on high. I mean, he's been interacting with with God there in, in, in this other realm, right? He is king over the sons of pride. He is the prince of the power of the air, Scripture says. So do you see how even in God's description, he is pointing to Satan? I just want you to notice something. He says, there is none like him. Where have we seen that before? in the story of Job. If you have your Bibles, turn back to chapter one and verse eight. And this is God speaking to Satan. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. We might be tempted to think that after chapter two, God and Satan are gone from the scene. But what we find out here is that God, Satan, and Job, those three characters are bookends to this whole story. And Satan comes now in this image of dread, in this picture of Leviathan. It says he's king over the sons of pride. All those who rebelled against God, Satan had no fear in rebelling. These are all images here from these two verses that help us understand what it is that that God is presenting here to Job. So what's the point that God is making here? I want want us to think through this a little bit. Be brief. God is saying, first of all, I am so sovereign over my natural creation, that was speech one, the earth, the heavens, the animal kingdom. But I'm also sovereign over over my supernatural creation. See, when, when, when God presented in, in speech one the natural creation, Job realized his ignorance and he covered his mouth and he couldn't speak. But now as God presents his sovereignty over the supernatural world, Job comes face to face with his arrogance and impotence against some such f- fearsome foes. And so the idea here is that behemoth is a beast that stands as a personified figure of death 
and that Leviathan is a beast that stands for the arch enemy of God, Satan himself. Now friends, hear this. We may believe that God is sovereign over his creation, but I think sometimes we struggle with the fact that God is sovereign over the supernatural. And friends, this is where we as God's people need to harness the truth, to stand on the truth. You know what it's like. Now, this is when I was living in Michigan. We had a basement, and I remember in the middle of the night having to go down to the basement for some reason, and you know, I would go downstairs, and of course I would step on toys that my kids left around. That was one thing you always have to worry about. But I remember going down in the darkness, and all of a sudden just filled with fear. It was an irrational fear. But it was fear, it was dread. And in that moment, I had to fight with what I knew to be true about my circumstances, my situation, and about what God says about who he is and how he works in this world. That there wasn't some kind of monster around the corner. Because our minds and our hearts can wander when we entertain those things. And we need to be certain that God is not just sovereign over his creation, which is wonderful, but he is sovereign over the supernatural world. Remember, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of darkness of this world. So God is saying to Job, Job, behemoth and Leviathan are the apex of natural and supernatural strength. They embody the inexplicable and the frightening in my mind. There is a great deal about these two creatures that you do not know, and you certainly can't control them. In your world, Job, These beasts are inexplicable, they are unfathomable, they are fearful, they are a power beyond human power, and so before them, you are powerless. Do you see that, Job? You are powerless. Yet, Job, I want you to get this. Both of these fearful, monstrous, and powerfully terrible beasts are under my control. They are held in my hand. Chapter 41, verse 11, God just drives this home. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So Job, stop your arguing. Stop your protesting. Stop your complaining. What you need isn't answers to your questions. What you need is me. Now friends, Elihu had said to Job, Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. God in his first speech has said to Job, look at my creation and know that I am God. Now God says to Job, be overwhelmed by death and evil and know that I am greater than them. See, God is, he is impressing upon Job how wonderfully, powerfully, Sovereign he is, greater than Job can even imagine. So Job then now responds with humility. On Friday night, or Friday during the day, my wife and I were buzzing around doing different things, taking care of work, and I was out, and Adam ended up going to work, and um, I came home, and. I was wanted to feed my cats and just trying to figure out where's, where's Timon? We have two cats, Timon and Pumbaa. There's a story behind that, but I'll let you figure that one out. Um, he's our tabby cat. 
I couldn't figure out where he was, and I thought, well, Timon's one of these cats that sometimes he'll get out, but he'll always be back, because he likes food, right? I mean, he'll always be back. And, um, and he's a nice cat for the most part. And then Elia came back, and we're sitting there, and it's, it's time for, for the evening food, and we're like, where's Timon? We couldn't find him anywhere. I mean, I, went, I walked through the house and looked at every cubby hole that he usually hides in, couldn't find him. So I just thought, well, maybe he's gotten out. Okay. So we just waited a little bit, and then later when it got a little dark, I went around again, but this time with a flashlight, just looking at all these different places, looked in the garage and that kind of stuff, and then I went out and drove around the neighborhood, hoping that I wouldn't see like a kitty carcass on on the side of the road, you know. Um, Came back, couldn't find him. And then then Adam comes back from work, and we're like, Adam, we haven't seen Timon. Now, you have to understand, this is really, really unusual, because Timon is always around. He's like, I haven't seen him, but he's like, I think I know where he might be. So sure enough, Adam goes upstairs, goes to his room. Understand, I went to his room. That's a whole other story. But I went to his room, teenage boy's room. And, well, he, he went up to his room, and he says, yeah, Dad, Timon's up here. He's hiding under my bed. Why wouldn't Timon come out? And Adam said, well, we celebrated my birthday last night. He and his girlfriend went out, and his girlfriend, among other things, bought him this big balloon, this silver balloon. And when Timon saw it, he just scampered away. So Timon for the whole day, even while we were calling for him with love and tenderness, was terrified of this balloon which we are gonna strategically place in the middle of our, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but the point is, I mean, finally, Gavin, or Adam was able to coax him out and, and to bring him downstairs, scratching and, and scraping all the way. And he finally came and sat on my lap and he was like breathing really, really heavy. I mean, he was terrified at this encounter with a balloon. Friends, I don't think we truly understand, even with the picture that we have here, of how mighty God is. He's presenting these beasts, not to say, oh, look at the beasts, although that's part of it, but ultimately behind that he's saying, you think they're powerful, you think they have some weight, you don't know what power is, and I am it. Friends, this is a reminder for us of what God really is like. And hear this. Let me remind you, God is not your buddy. He's not your pal. He's not your homeboy. He's not your co-pilot. He is the mighty, magnificent, sovereign, and most powerful God who created you and controls the universe that he created. He is holy. He's just. He's pure. He's righteous. God is also a consuming fire who brings righteous and fierce judgment, and his just wrath is poured out on all who shake their fist at him in rebellion. Job has accused God of injustice, and yet he has come face to face with God. Yet God has been gracious to him and carefully revealed Job's sinful response to his suffering, his ignorance, his arrogance, and his accusation of God's injustice. So now Job responds. And there are three steps, three dynamics, three marks, whatever you wanna say here, 
of his humble response. Let's look at them because they, they teach us some things. First of all, notice it begins with admiration. Verse two, Job says, I know, just pause there. <laughs> his I know here is different than any other I know about God that he has thought of before then. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This isn't a statement of resignation. This is an expression of unrestrained admiration. (laughs) Remember the quote by A.W. Tozer? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Job is now overwhelmed with the truth that God can do all things and what God chooses to do, he will do. No one, nothing will stand in his way. That is what he is consumed with. And so he recognizes that no one tells God what to do, that, that no one can challenge his wisdom or can overwhelm his power. Friends, are you in awe of who God is? When you read the Bible, you sit under the preaching of his word. Are you humbled by how little you truly know about God? And yet what little you do know is far more than maybe you should be privileged to know, but God has graciously revealed himself in the pages of his word. Job is calling on us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trial and our tribulation to look afresh at him, to learn all we can about who he is, and when we learn something more about him, to be in awe and to be strengthened with the confidence that he is truly in control. The psalmist in Psalm 46 says this, be still and know that I am God, and the question is why? Because God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. We're able to be still and to know that he is God. And friends, we need to keep plugging away at seeing him for who he truly is. Secondly, there's admiration. But then as a result of that admiration, there is this confession. In verse 3, Job speaks now and quotes what God has said in the introduction of both of his speeches. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And then he says, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He admits that he has spoken out of limited knowledge, speaking confidently about things too wonderful for him to understand. This is the cry of a liberated man, not one who has been broken and humiliated. He now sees the wonderful wisdom of the ways of the sovereign God of the universe. And he sees it firsthand in such a manner that that he's a changed man. His perspective of God has been radically changed. What he had in theory has now become a reality. He sees God's wise and powerful and sovereign ways. He didn't realize how much he really didn't know about God. And friends, we can be guilty of the same things. We can be guilty of uttering things that we don't understand, of telling God how you think something should be done or of how he should answer your prayers. We can be guilty of trying to force God to conform to our wishes, of wanting to end our pain and suffering according to our timetable 
of saying to God, you're unjust. This just is not fair. What God wants us to see is that there are things too wonderful for us to comprehend that what God is at work in, that God is at work in and through your trial and suffering, that he is a God who is bringing glory to himself through that, that suffering, that God is shaping you for his good. See, you might look at it and it might just all be a tangled mess of stuff, but to God, this is the blueprint for soul change and maturity and growth. You might say, this is not the way it should be. It should be a straight line. It should be you know, smooth because if I'm a child of God, doesn't he love me? Doesn't he want me to prosper? Well, who determines what that path looks like? Certainly not you. God does. And God, his blueprint sometimes is not what we would expect. And we must trust that he is sovereign over that blueprint. Isn't this what James says? Chapter one, verses two through four. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He's talking about being spiritually mature through these trials. So here, Job is admiring, and that results in confession, and that confession then bursts forth logically now into repentance. Again, he quotes, God, here and I will speak, I will question you and make, uh, you make it known to me, and here is what his response is. It's wonderful. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He's gained a knowledge of God and he's gained a knowledge of himself. He's saying, I now have a better understanding of God and as a result of my better understanding of God, I have a better understanding of myself. Right? A better understanding of God. I heard you before and hearing about God is good, but now I see you. I've come face to face. This is far better than I could imagine. And as a result of that, I despise myself. I see my sinfulness. I see who I really am. Now, hear this. Job is not repenting of any sin that took place before his suffering that he needed to repent of, so to speak, right? That caused his suffering. That's not the case. The, what he's repenting of is how he responded to that suffering. So having res- encountered God, Job repents in dust and ashes, probably indicating that he sprinkled the, the dust and ashes on his, fan, his head to indicate humility, actions which are, are a picture of heart change. And friends, this is often what trials do for us, isn't it? They take us to a place where we must see that our own answers are insufficient and that the only sufficient answer is Christ, to trust him and to rest in him. And isn't that what he tells us? Matthew eleven, twenty-eight. You know this very, very well. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But what kind of rest is that? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your, what? Didn't say body. 
He says, souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, here Job is, is he's adoring God for what he has now seen about God. He is in utter amazement. And that bears fruit then in confession, and then it continues on to bear fruit in repentance. Now I want to leave you with three thoughts from this text that help drive some things home. Some things I've said, but I want to repeat, maybe afresh, and um, I want us to consider this now. First of all, God's sovereignty is far greater than you can ever imagine. I want you to hear that, friends. That's the emphasis going on here. He is sovereign over everything natural. He's sovereign over everything supernatural. Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not an inch of this universe of which Jesus Christ does not say, it is mine. And he's simply echoing the words of Paul in Romans 11 where Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And as the old spiritual says, he's got the whole world in his hands. That's not some kind of trite little thing packed with true theology. That is powerful. And that is true. He is far more sovereign than you can even imagine. Secondly, Job's continuous question, why, is answered not by an explanation, but by a person, by God himself. Friends, the question of this book, even if you look at the heading of your handout, is why? (laughs) And the answer is God. Now, if I had said that at the beginning, you'd say, okay, well, that's cool. But now that we've walked through all of Job and you see what God is saying here, he's saying, Job, you want answers, you want explanations, but answers and explanations will not help you. What you need is to understand that I'm sovereign. And because I'm sovereign, I've got it all under control. And I'm a good God. And I care about you. You're one of my children. And I am doing everything that I'm doing for my glory and for your good. Now, that doesn't work too well in a prosperity gospel theology because that good is viewed as things that are happening now. But remember, all life is preparation for what? Eternity. God is far more concerned with your soul than your house and your car and your bank account, even your health. So stop measuring God's faithfulness by virtue of the answers you receive. Measure his goodness and faithfulness by virtue of who he is and what he has done for you. Finally, I think this is really important because I don't think we quite get the impact of this God spoke personally to Job, face to face, and he speaks personally to us through his word. This is not a distant revelation. 
we recognize that God breathed out his word so that we could have his heart, his desire laid out for us in written form so it could be readily available for us. And we know by virtue of what scripture says that when God's children are reading his word, the, 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 the person of the Godhead who is intimately involved in that is the, the Holy Spirit. And so that when we're studying God's word and we're, we're sitting under the preaching of God's word or we're just reading it for ourselves, it is like we are sitting face to face with God. This is a personal, intimate relationship with him that comes through the pages of his word. What does God say? You look in God's word, this is what he says. This is somehow God kind of sending you a tweet and it somehow eventually gets you. He has breathed out his word. And friends, you and I have this wonderful privilege to have it in our hands, to say, God, what do you desire? And then to open it, to study it. Now if we just go and pick and choose, we create things that maybe God is not intending. But he has given us his word to study, to grow from, to learn from, and to embrace, and to trust. Friends, God in his sovereignty is far greater than you can imagine. And yet, he has willfully chosen to give you this wonderful truth in written form, to know him, to understand how he thinks, and how you are to live for his glory. Trust him, lean on him, lean into him, even when you don't understand He is the one that you turn to. Christ is the one that you come running to. And we need that perspective. Lord, help us today. We have have embraced a very incredible text and a way by which you have declared yourself to Job for a specific purpose. But Lord, you've not only done that to Job, but by virtue of the fact that you have breathed it out in this Holy Scripture and given it to us, this is for us too, Lord. May we be in awe of the fact that your sovereignty isn't just the fact that you sit on a nice throne somewhere up in heaven, but Lord, you are far greater than we could ever imagine. And you desire to to press that upon Job, and Lord, would you press that upon us because we go through suffering, we go through trials, we face difficult circumstances, and it all seems very daunting, and it seems like it's out of control, and yet, Lord, we need to hear from you that you're sovereign, that you know we may not have the answers, but we know that we have our great God and Savior, who is fully in control and working for our good. Strengthen us, Lord, with this. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.